Chapter Twelve of the Alaskan. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Reading by Lars Rolander. The Alaskan by James Oliver Curwood. Chapter Twelve. This first night and dawn, in the herd of his wilderness, with a new import of life gleaming down at him from the mighty peaks of the Chugach and Kenai ranges, marked the beginning of that uplift which drew Alan out of the pit into which he had fallen. He understood now how it was that through many long years his father had worshipped the memory of a woman who had died. It seemed to him an infinity ago. Unnumbered times he had seen the miracle of her presence in his father's eyes, and once, when they had stood overlooking a sun-filled valley back in the mountains, the elder Holt had said, Twenty-seven years ago, the twelfth day of last month, mother went with me through this valley, Alan. Do you see the little bend in the creek with the great rock in the sun? We rested there before you were born. He had spoken of that day as if it had been but yesterday, and Alan recalled the strange happiness in his father's face as he had looked down upon something in the valley which no other but himself could see. And it was happiness the same strange soul-aching happiness that began to build itself a house close up against the grief in Alan's heart. It would never be a house quite empty. Never again would he be alone. He knew at last it was an undying part of him, as it had been a part of his father, clinging to him in sweet pain, encouraging him, pressing gently upon him the beginning of a great faith that somewhere beyond was a place to meet again. In the many days that followed, it grew in him, but in a way no man or woman could see. It was a secret about which he built a wall, setting it apart from that stoical placidity of his nature which some people called indifference. Olaf could see farther than others, because he had known Alan's father as a brother. It had always been that way with the elder Holt, straight, clean, deep-breathing, and with a smile on his lips in times of hurt. Olaf had seen him face death like that. He had seen him rise up with awesome courage from the beautiful form that had turned to clay under his eyes, and fight forth again into a world burned to ashes. Something of that look which he had seen in the eyes of the father he saw in Alan's. In these days, when they nosed their way up the Alaskan coast together, only to himself did Alan speak the name of Mary Standish, just as his father had kept Elizabeth Holt's name sacred in his own heart. Olaf, with mildly casual eyes and strong in the possession of memories, observed how much alike they were, but discretion held his tongue, and he said nothing to Alan of many things that ran in his mind. 
He talked of Siberia, always of Siberia, and did not hurry on the way to seaward. Alan himself felt no great urge to make haste. The days were soft with the premature breath of summer. The nights were cold and filled with stars. Day after day, mountains hung about them like mighty castles, whose battlements reached up into the cloud draperies of the sky. They kept close to the mainland and among the islands, camping early each evening. Birds were coming northward by the thousand, and each night Olaf's campfire sent up the delicious aroma of flesh pots and roasts. When at last they reached seaward, and the time came for Olaf to turn back, there was an odd blinking in the old Swede's eyes, and as a final comfort, Alan told him again that the day would probably come when he would go to Siberia with him. After that he watched the Norden until the little boat was lost in the distance of the sea. Alone, Alan felt once more greater desire to reach his own country, and he was fortunate. Two days after his arrival at Seawards, the steamer which carried mail and the necessities of life to the string of settlements reaching a thousand miles out into the Pacific left Resurrection Bay and he was given passage. Thereafter the countless islands of the North Pacific drifted behind, while always northward were the grey cliffs of the Alaskan Peninsula, with the ramparted ranges beyond, glistening with glaciers, smoking with occasional volcanoes, and at times so high their snowy peaks were lost in the clouds. First touching the hatchery at Karlok, and then the canneries at Uyak and Chignik, the mailboat visited the settlements on the island of Unga, and thence covered swiftly the three hundred miles to Dutch Harbor and Unalaska. Again he was fortunate. Within a week he was berthed on a freighter, and on the twelfth day of June set foot in Nome. His homecoming was unheralded. But the little grey town with its peculiar black shadowings, its sea of stovepipes, and its two solitary brick chimneys brought a lump of joy into his throat as he watched its growing outlines from the small boat that brought him ashore. He could see one of the only two brick chimneys in northern Alaska gleaming in the sun. Beyond it, fifty miles away, were the ragged peaks of the Sawtooth Range looking as if one might walk to them in half an hour, and over all the world between seemed to hover a misty gloom. But it was where he had lived, where happiness and tragedy and unforgettable memories had come to him, and the welcoming of its frame buildings, its crooked streets, and what to others might have been ugliness was a warm and thrilling thing. For there were his people— here were the men and women who were guarding the northern door of the world, an epic place, filled with strong hearts, courage, and a love of country as inextinguishable as one's love of life. From this drab little place, shut out from all the world for half the year, young men and women went down to southern universities, to big cities, to the glamour and lure of outside, 
but they always came back. Nome called them, its loneliness in winter, its grey gloom in springtime, its glory in summer and autumn. It was the breeding place of a new race of men, and they loved it as Alan loved it. To him the black wireless tower meant more than the Statue of Liberty, the three weather-beaten church spires more than the architectural colossi of New York and Washington. Beside one of the churches he had played as a boy. He had seen the steeples painted. He had helped make the crooked streets. And his mother had laughed and lived and died here. And his father's footprints had been in the white sands of the beach when tents dotted the shore like gulls. When he stepped ashore, people stared at him and then greeted him. He was unexpected, and the surprise of his arrival added strength to the grip which men's hands gave him. He had not heard voices like theirs down in the States, with a gladness in them that was almost excitement. Small boys ran up to his side, and with white men came the Eskimo grinning and shaking his hands. Word travelled swiftly that Alan Holt had come back from the States. Before the day was over, it was on its way to Shelton and Candle and Kevalik and Kotzebue Sound. Such was the beginning of his homecoming. But ahead of the news of his arrival, Alan walked up Front Street, stopped at Balke's restaurant for a cup of coffee, and then dropped casually into Lohman's offices in the Tin Bank building. For a week Alan remained in Nome. Carl Lohman had arrived a few days before and his brothers were in from the big ranges of the Corris Peninsula. It had been a good winter, and promised to be a tremendously successful summer. The Lohman herds would exceed forty thousand head when the final figures were in. A hundred other herds were prospering, and the Eskimo and Laps were full-cheeked and plump, with good feeding and prosperity. A third of a million reindeer were on the hoof in Alaska, and the breeders were exultant, pretty good when compared with the fact that in 1902 there were less than 5,000. In another 20 years there would be 10 million. But with this prosperity of the present and still greater promise for the future, Alan sensed the undercurrent of unrest and suspicion in Nome. After waiting and hoping through another long winter, with their best men fighting for Alaska's salvation at Washington, word was traveling from mouth to mouth, from settlement to settlement, and from range to range, that the bureaucracy, which misgoverned them from thousands of miles away, was not lifting a hand to relieve them. Federal office holders refused to surrender their deadly power, and their strangling methods were to continue. Coal, which should cost ten dollars a ton if dug from Alaska mines, would continue to cost forty dollars. Coal storage from Nome would continue to be fifty-two dollars a ton, when it should be twenty. Commercial brigandage was still given letters of marquee. Bureaus were fighting amongst themselves for greater power, and in the turmoil Alaska was still chained like a starving man just outside the reach of all the milk and honey in a wonderful land. 
pauperizing, degrading, actually killing the political misrule that had already driven 25% of Alaska's population from their homes was to continue indefinitely. A president of the United States had promised to visit the mighty land of the North and see with his own eyes, but would he come? There had been other promises, many of them, and promises had always been futile. But it was a hope that crept through Alaska, and upon this hope men whose courage never died began to build. Freedom was on its way, even if slowly. Justice must triumph ultimately, as it always triumphed. Rusty keys would at last be turned in the locks which had kept from Alaskans all the riches and resources of their country, and these men were determined to go on building against odds that they might be better prepared for that freedom of human endeavor when it came. In these days, when the fires of achievement needed to be encouraged and not smothered, neither Allan nor Carl Lohman emphasized the menace of gigantic financial interests like that controlled by John Graham, interests fighting to do away with the best friend Alaska ever had, the biological survey, and backing with all their power the ruinous legislation to put Alaska in the control of a group of five men that an aggrandizement even more deadly than a suffocating policy of conservation might be more easily accomplished. Instead, they spread the optimism of men possessed of inextinguishable faith. The blackest days were gone. Rifts were breaking in the clouds. Intelligence was creeping through like rays of sunshine. The end of Alaska's serfdom was near at hand. So they preached, and knew they were preaching truth for what remained of Alaska's men after years of hopelessness and distress were fighting men, and the women who had remained with them were the mothers and wives of a new nation in the making. These mothers and wives Alan met during his week in Nome. He would have given his life if a few million people in the States could have known these women. Something would have happened then, and the sisterhood of half a continent possessing the power of the ballot, would have opened their arms to them. Men like John Graham would have gone out of existence. Alaska would have received her birthright, for these women were of the kind who greeted the sun each day, and the gloom of winter with something greater than hope in their hearts. They, too, were builders. Fear of God and love of land lay deep in their souls, and side by side with their men-folk, they went on this epic struggle for the building of a nation at the top of the world. Many times during this week, Alan felt it in his heart to speak of Mary Standish, but in the end, not even to Carl Lohman, did word of her escape his lips. The passing of each day had made her more intimately a part of him, and a secret part. He could not tell people about her, he even made evasions when questioned about his business and experiences at Cordova and up the coast. Curiously, she seemed nearer to him when he was away from other men and women. He remembered it had been that way with his father, who was always happiest when in the deep mountains or the unending tundras. 
And so Alan thrilled with an inner gladness when his business was finished and the day came for him to leave Nome. Carloman went with him as far as the big herd on Corys Peninsula. For one hundred miles up to Shelton they rode over a narrow gorge, four-foot railway on a hand-car drawn by dogs, and it seemed to Alan at times as though Mary Standish were with him, riding in this strange way through a great wilderness. He could see her. That was the strange thing which began to possess him. There were moments when her eyes were shining softly upon him, her lips smiling, her presence so real he might have spoken to her if Loman had not been at his side. He did not fight against these visionings. It pleased him to think of her going with him into the heart of Alaska, riding the picturesque pup-mobile, losing herself in the mountains and in his tundras, with all the wonder and glory of a new world breaking upon her a little at a time, like the unfolding of a great mystery. For there was both wonder and glory in these countless miles running ahead and drifting behind, and the miracle of northward sweeping life. The days were long. Night, as Mary Standish had always known night, was gone. On the twentieth of June there were twenty hours of day, with a dim and beautiful twilight between the hours of eleven and one. Sleep was no longer a matter of the rising and setting of the sun, but was regulated by the hands of the watch. A world frozen to the core for seven months was bursting open like a great flower. From Shelton, Alan and his companion visited the eighty or ninety people at Candle, and thence continued down the Kevalik River to Kevalik, on Kotzebue Sound. A Loman powerboat run by laps carried them to Corys Peninsula, where for a week Alan remained with Loman and his huge herd of fifteen thousand reindeer. He was eager to go on, but tried to hide his impatience. Something was urging him, whipping him on to greater haste. For the first time in months he heard the crackling thunder of reindeer hoofs, and the music of it was like a wild call from his own herds hurrying him home. He was glad when the weekend came and his business was done. The powerboat took him to Kotzebu. It was night, as his watch went, when Paul Davidovich started up the delta of the Kubrick River with him in a lighter-rich company's boat. But there was no darkness. In the afternoon of the fourth day they came to the Redstone, two hundred miles above the mouth of the Kobuk, as the river winds. They had supper together on the shore. After that Paul Davidovich turned back with the slow sweep of the current, waving his hand until he was out of sight. Not until the sound of the Russian's motorboat was lost in distance did Alan sense fully the immensity of the freedom that swept upon him. At last, after months that had seemed like so many years, he was alone. North and eastward stretched the unmarked trail which he knew so well, a hundred and fifty miles straight as a bird might fly, almost unmapped, unpeopled, right up to the doors of his range in the slopes of the Endicott Mountains. 
A little cry from his own lips gave him a start. It was as if he had called out aloud to Tautuk and Amuktulik and to Keok and Navadluk, telling them he was on his way home and would soon be there. Never had his hidden land which he had found for himself seemed so desirable as it did in this hour. There was something about it that was all mothering, all good, all sweetly comforting, to that other thing which had become a part of him now. It was holding out its arms to him, understanding, welcoming, inspiring him to travel strongly and swiftly the space between, and he was ready to answer its call. He looked at his watch. It was five o'clock in the afternoon. He had spent a long day with the Russian, but he felt no desire for rest or sleep. The musk-tang of the tundras coming to him through the thin timber of the river-courses worked like an intoxicant in his blood. It was the tundras he wanted, before he lay down upon his back with his face to the stars. He was eager to get away from timber and to feel the immeasurable space of the big country, the open country about him. What fool had given to it the name of barren lands? What idiot's people were to lie about it in that way on the maps? He strapped his pack over his shoulders and seized his rifle. Barren lands. He set out walking like a man in a race and long before the twilight hours of sleep they were sweeping out ahead of him in all their glory, the barren lands of the map-makers, his paradise. On a knoll he stood in the golden sun and looked about him. He set his pack down and stood with bared head, a whispering of cool wind in his hair. If Mary Standish could have lived to see this... He stretched out his arms as if pointing for her eyes to follow, and her name was in his heart and whispering on his silent lips. Immeasurable the tundras reached ahead of him, rolling, sweeping, treeless, green and golden, and a glory of flowers, a thrill with a life no forest land had ever known. Under his feet was a crush of forget-me-nots and of white and purple violets, their sweet perfume filling his lungs as he breathed. Ahead of him lay a white sea of yellow-eyed daisies with purple iris high as his knees in between. And as far as he could see, waving softly in the breeze, was the cotton-tufted sedge he loved. The pots were green. In a few days they would be opening, and the tundras would be white carpets. He listened to the call of life. It was about him everywhere, a melody of bird life subdued and sleepy, even though the sun was still warmly aglow in the sky. A hundred times he had watched this miracle of bird instinct, the going to bed of feathered creatures in the weeks and months when there was no real night. He picked up his pack and went on. From a pool hidden in the lush grasses of a distant hollow came to him the twilight honking of nesting geese and the quacking content of wild ducks. He heard the reed-like musical notes of a lone organ duck, 
and the plaintive cries of plover and farther out where the shadows seemed deepening against the rim of the horizon rose the harsh rolling notes of cranes and the raucous cries of the loons and then from a clump of willows near him came a chirping twitter of a thrush whose throat was tired for the day and the sweet sleepy evening song of a robin night alan laughed softly the pale flush of the sun in his face bedtime he looked at his watch it was nine o'clock nine o'clock and the flowers still answering to the glow of the sun and the people down there in the states called it a frozen land a hell of ice and snow at the end of the earth a place of the survival of the fittest well to just such extremes had stupidity and ignorance gone through all the years of history even though men called themselves super creatures of intelligence and knowledge it was humorous and it was tragic at last he came to a shining pool between two tufted ridges and in this velvety hollow the twilight was gathering like a shadow in a cup a little creek ran out of the pool and here alan gathered soft grass and spread out his blankets a great stillness drew in about him broken only by the old squaws and the loons at eleven o'clock he could still see clearly the sleeping waterfowl on the surface of the pool but the stars were appearing it grew duskier and the rose tint of the sun faded into purple gloom as pale night drew near four hours of rest that was neither darkness nor day with a pillow of sedge and grass under his head he slept the song and cry of bird life wakened him and at dawn he bathed in the pool with dozens of fluffy new-born ducks dodging away from him among the grasses and reeds that day and the next and the day after that he travelled steadily into the heart of the tundra country swiftly and almost without rest it seemed to him at last that he must be in that country where all the bird life of the world was born for wherever there was water in the pools and little streams and the hollows between the ridges the voice of it in the morning was a babble of sound out of the sweet breast of the earth he could feel the irresistible pulse of motherhood filling him with its strength and its courage and whispering to him its everlasting message that because of the glory and need and faith of life had god created this land of twenty-hour day and four-hour twilight in it in these days of summer was no abating place for gloom yet in his own heart as he drew near to his home was a place of darkness which his light could not quite enter the tundras had made mary standish more real to him in the treeless spaces in the vast reaches with only the sky shutting out his vision she seemed to be walking near to him almost with her hand in his at times it was like a torture inflicted upon him for his folly and when he visioned what might have been and recalled too vividly that it was he who had stilled with death 
that living glory which dwelt with him in spirit now. A crying sob, of which he was not ashamed, came from his lips. For when he thought too deeply, he knew that Mary Standish would have lived if he had said other things to her that night aboard the ship. She had died not for him, but because of him. Because in his failure to live up to what she believed she had found in him, he had broken down what must have been her last hope and her final faith. If he had been less blind, and God had given him the inspiration of a greater wisdom, she would have been walking with him now, laughing in the rose-tinted dawn, growing tired amid the flowers, sleeping under the clear stars, happy and unfraid, and looking to him for all things. At least so he dreamt, in his immeasurable loneliness. He did not tolerate the thought that other forces might have called her, even had she lived, and that she might not have been his to hold and to fight for. He did not question the possibility of shackles and chains that might have bound her, or other inclinations that might have led her. He claimed her, now that she was dead, and knew that living he would have possessed her. Nothing could have kept him from that, but she was gone, and for that he was accountable, and the fifth night he lay sleepless under the stars, and like a boy cried for her with his face upon his arm. And when morning came and went on, never had the world seemed so vast and empty. His face was grey and haggard, a face grown suddenly old, and he travelled slowly, for the desire to reach his people was dying within him. He could not laugh with Keok and Navadluk, or give the old Tundra call to Amok Tulik and his people, who would be riotous in their happiness at his return. They loved him. He knew that. Their love had been a part of his life, and the knowledge that his response to this love would be at best a poor and broken thing filled him with dread. A strange sickness crept through his blood. It grew in his head, so that when noon came he did not trouble himself to eat. It was late in the afternoon when he saw far ahead of him the clump of cottonwoods near the warm springs, very near his home. Often he had come to these old cottonwoods, an oasis of timber lost in the great tundras, and he had built himself a little camp among them. He loved the place. It had seemed to him that now and then he must visit the forlorn trees to give them cheer and comradeship. His father's name was carved in the bowl of the greatest of them all, and under it the date and day when he the elder Holt had discovered them in a land where no man had gone before. And under his father's name was his mother's, and under that his own. He had made of the place a sort of shrine, a green and sweet-flowered tabernacle of memories, and its bird-song and peace in summer, and the weird aloneness of it in winter, had played their parts in the making of his soul. Through many months he had anticipated this hour of his homecoming, 
when in the distance he would see the beckoning welcome of the old cottonwoods with the rolling foothills and frosted peaks of the endicott mountains beyond and now he was looking at the trees and the mountains and something was lacking in the thrill of them he came up from the west between two willow ridges through which ran the little creek from the warm springs and he was within a quarter of a mile of them when something stopped him in his tracks at first he thought the sound was the popping of guns but in a moment he knew it could not be so and the truth flashed suddenly upon him this day was the fourth of july and someone in the cottonwoods was shooting firecrackers a smile softened his lips he recalled Keok's mischievous habit of lightening a whole bunch at one time, for which apparent wastefulness Navadlook never failed to scold her. They had prepared for his homecoming with a celebration, and Tautuk and Amuktulik had probably imported a supply of big bangs from Alakakat or Tanana. The oppressive weight inside him lifted, and the smile remained on his lips. And then as if commanded by a voice his eyes turned to the dead cottonwood stub which had sentineled the little oasis of trees for many years at the very crest of it floating bravely in the breeze that came with the evening sun was an american flag he laughed softly these were the people who loved him who thought of him who wanted him back his heart beat faster, stirred by the old happiness, and he drew himself quickly into a strip of willows that grew almost up to the cottonwoods. He would surprise them. He would walk suddenly in among them, unseen and unheard. That was the sort of thing that would amaze and delight them. He came to the first of the trees and concealed himself carefully. He heard the popping of individual firecrackers and the louder bang of one of the giants that always made Navadlook put her fingers in her pretty ears. He crept stealthily over a knoll, down through a hollow, and then up again to the opposite crest. It was as he had thought. He could see Keok a hundred yards away, standing on the trunk of a fallen tree, and as he looked, she tossed another bunch of sputtering crackers away from her. The others were probably circled about her, out of his sight, watching her performance. He continued cautiously making his way that he could come up behind a thick growth of bush unseen, within a dozen paces of them. At last he was as near as that to her, and Keok was still standing on the log with her back toward him. It puzzled him that he could not see or hear the others. And something about Keok puzzled him, too. And then his heart gave a sudden throb and seemed to stop its beating. It was not Keok on the log, and it was not Navarlook. He stood up and stepped out from his hiding place. The slender figure of the girl on the log turned a little, and he saw the glint of golden sunshine in her hair. He called out, Keok! Was he mad? Had the sickness in his head turned his brain? 
and then mary he called mary standish she turned and in that moment alan holt's face was the color of gray rock it was the dead he had been thinking of and it was the dead that had risen before him now for it was mary standish who stood there on the old cottonwood log shooting firecrackers in this evening of his homecoming end of chapter 12 of the alaskan by james oliver curwood read by lars rolander